Yeah, well, that's okay. We're entering a slightly new section this morning, so not really, but sort of. This morning we're going to start, I decided to do this in a two-parter, looking at the crucifixion. So I'm going to read just that section I intend to cover this morning, which is verses 27 through 37 of chapter 27. That's right, I went 27, 27 through 37. Okay. The governor's soldiers took Yeshua into the headquarters building, and the whole battalion gathered around him. They stripped off his clothes and put on him a scarlet robe, wool, thorn branches into a crown, and put it on his head and put a stick in his right hand. Then they kneeled down in front of him and made fun of him. Hail to the king of the Jews. They spit on him and used a stick to beat him about the head. And when they finished ridiculing him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes back on him, and led him away to be nailed to the execution stake. And as they were leaving, they met a man from Cyrene named Simeon, and they forced him to carry Yeshua's execution stake. And when they arrived at a place called Golgothal, which means the place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with bitter gall to drink. And after tasting it, he wouldn't drink it. And after they nailed him to the stake, they divided his clothes among them by throwing dice. And they sat down to keep watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written notice stating the charge against him. This is Yeshua, the king of the Jews. This, this week... We're celebrating Thanksgiving. Oh, Norman Rockwell. I don't know what we'd do without him, but try to figure it out. And uh, after a tune of food poisoning last night, this suddenly doesn't look that appealing to me. No. <laughs> but it sort of strikes me as apropos that we're looking at the cross this week because Without the cross, we'd have no basis for any real thanksgiving. And the historic roots come out of that same reality, of course. And believe it or not, there were multiple first thanksgivings, including one quite a bit before the ones we normally think about with the Spanish. But we won't talk about that because tamales for Thanksgiving never really did it for me. But the one we normally think about is the one of 1621 in Plymouth. There was one in one of the other uh, colonies before that. But that's where the pilgrims thanked God for surviving a bitter winter. But the cross was the foundation of the pilgrims' relationship with God, too. And they had fled because of religious persecution, and this was over issues of worship and these kinds of factors. But... The fact of the matter was they came because to be able to worship God, to be able to relate to him as they felt he was leading them as Christians. And so their thanksgiving was tied to this. And so the idea of having, at least in this country, of having a national thanksgiving disconnected from the reality of the cross, just there's no point because what blessings we have come from the Father. And so that's what I want to sort of focus on as where we're going and and where I want to end up at the end of this session this morning is in the fact that as we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, then it seems that it's a great idea to look at the cross this week and next week as the basis for that Thanksgiving. And so because Jesus died for our sins, that's why we can be thankful. 
The other things that we're thankful for, the blessings that he gives us materially or circumstantially, that's fine. And we should be thanking him for those things. But that's not the most important thing. And so that's what I want us to focus on this Thursday as we celebrate Thanksgiving and the blessing that it's at least one day you're okay to make a pig out of New England. So, uh, I want to reiterate some points I've been making as we look at these passages. And that is, first of all, when when we're in Holy Week in the broadest sense and coming up to the crucifixion, it's to remember that God was in control. That Christ was in control. He could have put a stop to this any time he wanted. That uh, nothing happened that he did not allow. Now, obviously, he wasn't going to stop it because that was the whole point of his story was coming to this moment in time. But it's important to recognize he was in control. He was not the victim here. A lot of liberal theology and some of the cults who want to sort of write off all of this will say, well, he failed and he was a victim of Rome and his own ego. There was no victimness here. Nobody had any power over him but what he allowed. And the other thing is you'll find in a lot of commentaries, uh, authors will go into a great amount of detail about the actual physiological effects of the crucifixion. I don't intend to do that. I never even saw the Passion of Christ. I don't need to see that level of violence. The fact of the matter was, as horrendous as that was, that's not where the real suffering was of the crucifixion. And it w- and that's not where the uniqueness of it was either. Got to understand that Rome was executing by crucifixion thousands of people, and what was done to Jesus here by the Roman soldiers was not unique. Every, none as bad as all this stuff was, it was not unique to him. What was unique was one, he was in control, and two, the suffering on the cross when he took on this, our sins. And by focusing on the physical aspects as horrendous as they are, we lose sight of the fact that that suffering was secondary to his real suffering on the cross, which was when when the Father turned his back on him for our sins. And so that's why, you know, I will touch on it, but I don't intend to spend any significant amount of time discussing the medical aspects of the of crucifixion you can find those in your bible dictionary there's plenty of material if you want to read into it now we saw that re-emphasizing the fact he was in control we saw that there were two trials uh with you know six appearances the two trials were the religious and the secular and as i was thinking about that i thought you know that's a lot like people's responses to the gospel the religious leadership was threatened It responded out of anger and fear. They were closed to anything that challenged their view of God and their authority. They wanted to deal with God on their own terms rather than his terms. Then there was the secular um, trials. Rome didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't care who Jesus was. There was no uniqueness to him. For them, the issue of the trial was political and pragmatic. They made, Pilate and Herod made the decisions they needed to make to keep the peace. To remember, 
Rome was, uh, Palestine was the backwater for Rome if you'd blown it and you weren't too popular. Instead of getting sent to Siberia or, or Nome, Alaska, you got sent to Judea. And the last thing they wanted was Rome coming in there and saying, well, look how you messed this one up. So they simply gave in to the Jewish leadership just to keep things quiet. They, and you have to remember that there were a lot, this was a time when there were a lot of people running around claiming to be messiahs. And so from Rome's, from Rome's perspective at this moment in time, this was just one more in-house debate with these pesky people who are constantly making trouble for them. And let's just solve this. We'll give them a choice. They choose Barabbas. We don't care. Let's just get this over with and get on with life. They had no perspective of what was at stake here. So they acted just out of the evil that comes with, with bureaucracy, non-thinking bureaucracy. Not the same kind of level of evil as the, as the Jewish leadership. So, you know, I was thinking, well, this is pretty much the way people deal with Jesus today. You get those who are threatened by him. Those who want their own religion their own way. You see this in, in Islam where they recognize Jesus, but it's a different Jesus. It's not Jesus as he defines himself. We see this in the current trend towards pop atheism which isn't really intellectually very impressive. People like Dawkins and stuff are basically, are exactly that. They're pop atheists. They're not thoughtful people. But the level of hostility and anger in these people, the vitriol, is because they're threatened by somebody's view of God. So what do they want to do? They want to crucify Christ or crucify Christians. Even though they're opposed to religion in general, Christianity always gets to be the flavor of the month that they're most opposed to. So that, that's, the, that's the one side. Then you get the other side that are like Rome. Those who consider the Bible, Christ, God irrelevant in general. I was watching the whistles and the bells on the new Star Trek movie. Okay, I'm a Star Trek fan. I'm sorry. And they were talking about Roddenberry. And, of course, Gene Roddenberry's view was that the gods were at most aliens and, and as we advanced we had no longer any need for religion and and man is going to be his own god and bring salvation and things are going to be wonderful in the 23rd century because man will be so advanced. After he lost control of the show, of course, and Deep Space Nine came along, all of a sudden religion was treated with some amount of respect, even if it was alien religions. But, I mean, at least it came back into his universe. But these are the kind of people that don't see any need for God. These are the ones for whom the cross is a stumbling block. Who they, you know, that's pr primitive and superstitious. And as we grow and mature and become more civilized, we're supposed to put these things behind us. So those are the two kinds of responses we get to the gospel, of course, besides those who accept it. And they're very, very similar to what we're seeing in the responses that Jesus got in these trials. So nothing is new. This is still the way people are today. It all comes back to that same old question, Matthew 16, 13 to 15. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say he's John the Baptist, others Elijah, 
still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? That's that's what it all boils down to. Today they say, oh, he was a prophet or he was a Jewish rabbi that never wanted to start a system or he's the Messiah and he's just another one of the prophets subordinate to Muhammad. But who do you say I am? And that's the question. That's that's what we've been looking at with this study on the on comparative religions. Who do they say Jesus is? So that's the question that arose. That's the question that arose at the religious trial. That's the question that arose at the secular trial. Not surprisingly, the secular trial didn't care who he was. The religious trial was afraid of who he was. And that's people's responses today. Now, one last uh, side point is that as you look, especially in Sunday school where you got the picture cards and stuff like that, if you're old enough to remember those, a lot of the pictures that show the, the way to the cross and show people around the cross show small little groups of people, uh, handfuls. But remember, what's the context? This is Passover week. There's two to three million plus people in Jerusalem. So with all of these people, it's safe to assume that when the word got around, which it did, remember after the rent the crowd came out and said, give us Barabbas, because now we're moving into daylight. The word, I'm sure, got around that Jesus was going to be crucified, and he had a huge following. But remember, the whole reason for getting Rome involved was, one, because they couldn't execute him themselves, and two, because it put Rome on the hook and got them off. But the word has to got, has gotten around. So we have no idea how many people were along the way and were there on the hill. We don't know, but it's safe to assume that the numbers were a lot larger than most of our picture cards probably showed. So this is, even though Rome doesn't get it, it's a big event in Jerusalem. So that brings us up to where we are in verses, first I want to look at verses 27 to 31. Then the governor's soldiers led Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head and they put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the staff and struck him about the head again and again. And they mocked him and he took off the robe and put on his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. Now understand, this was not unique. Again, we've got, and from the, depending on how you identify the language here, there was somewhere between 120 and maybe as many as 600 men were in this group that was involved in this crucifixion. And they were bored. They were stuck out there in the backwater. And they and this is the way they treated a lot of their uh, a lot of those that they were going to execute. Most of whom probably were criminals by Rome's law. And the beating and the scourging was normal. Again, that was done for a couple of reasons. It would have taken the energy and the fight out of their victims. It would have also made the likelihood of them dying sooner uh, a reality. And they were told to do this. Now, they weren't told to do this business with the king and the robes and all that. Again, there was a lot to anti-Semitism going, so they were mocking the charges. 
But even this kind of behavior was not unique. There, if you read Josephus and other the Roman writings, you'll find this kind of thing was happened a lot too, where they would mock the prisoners. And so what is vile about it wasn't from their perspective. It was routine. From our perspective, it, here this is happening to the Son of God. This is happening to Christ who came to pay the price for our sins. That's what makes it unique. But from them, it was just another day at work. Okay. And what I think we lose sight of is it was horrendous in its normality that this is the way they treated their prisoners. And the logic behind it's obvious. This was a deterrent, or hopefully a deterrent, to those who legitimately were in rebellion, who wanted to create revolt. This was a warning. If you come up against us, this is the price you're going to pay. You know, we talk about the death penalty being not being a deterrent. Well, of course it's not. It's not enforced. You know, what's the likelihood of it being anybody being executed for anything? So that doesn't make it a deterrent. Whether we like this or not, and this was brutal, and, and the form of execution was brutal, but again, they were deterrents. It was a brutal world. And people would think twice about I mean, you get caught, the price was pretty high. So again, what's happening to Jesus is unique only because of the incarnation. But it's not unique because of the event. And certainly, those who were involved had no concept that it was anything different than they'd been doing all the time with those who were guilty of sedition and were guilty of capital crime under Rome. They had to get their fun where they could get it. And often you see soldiers and others who will ridicule and put down their enemy as a way to deal with the ugliness they have to deal with. They were just following orders. MacArthur notes, although it was far from the soldier's intent, the use of scarlet was reminiscent of Isaiah's declaration that though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Just as the soldiers clothed Jesus in scarlet robes, he willingly clothed himself in the scarlet sins of the world in order that those who believe in him might be freed from that sin. I'm going to keep going back to this. He allowed this to happen. Everything that was going on could have been stopped. But for our sake, it wasn't. But these soldiers had no power over him. Whether it's 120 or 600, they treated him the way they treated him because that's the way they treated everybody that fell into their hands. This is not what makes this unique. And one could almost argue from their perspective it was merciful if this meant that the prisoner would die sooner on the cross that was certainly a mercy we can't look at it in terms of 21st century thinking this is the reality of the world of that day and this also helps us understand what happens in verse 32 as they're going out they met a man from Cyrene named Simeon and forced him to carry the cross the reason, now, you know, some will argue it was the cross bar, 
most tend to think it was the full cross that would have weighed about 200 pounds. But Jesus needed help to carry the cross because of everything that had happened to him. He had been beaten. He was physically weak. He'd been up for hours. He'd been tried. All the emotional pain all the emo- and all the physical stress and abuse. And so he needed help. Now, we don't know anything about this individual, Simon, except that, Simeon, except that his name sounds Jewish. He came from Cyrene. Cyrene was on that up the most northern shore at the very top of Africa. And the fact that he had come from out of the country into Jerusalem leads one to think that possibly he was a Jewish believer who had come in for the Passover like so many others. And so he was stopped along the way and he had to help Christ with carry the cross. Now, I want to move over to Luke for an expansion on this passage. In Luke 23, 26 to 31, we have here one piece of information that's not found in any of the other Gospels. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Serene, who was on the way into the country, and put a cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed, Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? dry? This is really Jesus' last sort of sermon. It's prophetic in nature. And as he's going uh, down the road towards Golgotha, there are groups of women that are walking along and mourning and weeping. Now, we don't know who they were. Were they his followers? Did it include some of the names we know? I don't know. Um, Were they truly grieving over what was happening? It would seem so from the language, but we don't know for sure. And so what he does is he turns to them and gives them a warning. And he said, basically what he's saying is, don't weep now. You're going to be facing a time of a lot more weeping than this. And he's warning them, and really this is from prophetically talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Because he's, you know, for Jewish women, barrenness was sort of the ultimate curse. And the reason, again, had to do with the fact that land is passed through the family. And if you don't have children, your tie to the land that God gave could be lost. And so to be childless, and you've, we see all sorts of examples of this in Scripture with Sarah, Samuel's mother, or Hannah rather, Samuel's mother, and with Sarah in her old age, because with Rebecca and others. So we see the cost of barrenness. And but he's saying the day is coming when having children will be worse than not having children because of what's going to be happening. Because of the fall of the city, the people flee Jerusalem and pray that the mountains will fall on them because of the destruction that comes in 70 A.D. when the city is totally destroyed. And Josephus gives us an account that during that period, 
even mothers were eating their own children because of starvation. So he's saying this is nothing compared to what's coming in terms of ugliness. And this was a consequence of their, of the sin, not of the sin of crucifying Jesus, but of the sin of the ongoing rebellion of Israel and turning away from God and from and rejecting Christ as Savior. And so he's really, again, referring back to Hosea 10.8, or maybe have had that in mind where he reads, the high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It's the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars, and then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills fall on us. And so a great famine occurs in that siege, which went on for four years, 66 to 70 um, A.D., uh, the siege of Jerusalem before the city finally fell. So you've got four years of war. Gee, sounds a lot like today in Jerusalem. Not quite as bad, but still, it nothing ever changes, does it? And so he's saying, he warned them. Would If the city had accepted him, would things have been different? No, because the nation never did accept him. And in the early church, huge numbers of Jews came to accept him. Doesn't didn't change anything. This was the ongoing destruction because of the rebellion of the nation. And that has continued to this day. And the only hope is, as we know, that one day the nation will repent, will recognize as a nation the individuals that make up the nation, Jesus as Messiah, and the city will be or the nation will be restored. But right now we won't even build a, a um, the United States will not build the diplomatic offices in Jerusalem. We've got them down in Tel Aviv. Jerusalem is the open city. Jerusalem is the religious Disneyland. Jerusalem is the center of ongoing battle. And you can't sit down with the Arab nations at this point to make peace by giving up land in Israel because and still the goal is to destroy the Jewish nation. But God is in control, just as he is in control here. Now back to um, Matthew, verses 33 to 37. Now they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused it. And when they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, they offered him here, and this apparently happened twice on the cross, or once on the cross, once at this point. He's offered wine mixed with an herb, which is identified here as gall, which is poisonous, by the way, or myrrh in Mark. The idea would have been you would have given basically some kind of a minor anesthetic to those that you're going to crucify. You have, they would struggle less. It would be easier basically to nail them to a cross. But he refuses to drink. 
And then the soldiers crucified Jesus. Now, what that is simply referring to specifically is the nailing of the cross and to the cross and then the lifting of the cross up. Kerner points out that crucifixion was widely practiced by the Romans, and the early historian Josephus mentioned thousands of people were crucified in first century Palestine, mostly during rebellions against Rome. There are stories of Roman soldiers cruelly playing with different postures for crucified victims, and you can read this in Josephus' Jewish Wars. Through the use of nails and a cross, though the use of nails and a crossfire appeared to have been common. This was the normal way that Rome executed criminals who were seditious and who were rebellion. And there was a lot of rebellion against Rome among the Jews. I mean, it ends up finally at Masala. And this was constantly going on, and Rome couldn't allow that even in this backwater. The price of Pax Romana, the 400 years of Roman peace, which is the longest period of peace the world's probably ever seen, wasn't all that peaceful. It was carried out by keeping rebellion down, by making the cost of being uh, being seditious and being caught way too high to want to do it. Fear is a great controller, let's face it. That's why we all slow down when we see the fire. Never mind. Well, as I've said numerous times, I drive by the grace, not by law. And people would die from usually on the cross from one of two ways, either shock or asphyxiation because you would have to lift, pull yourself up to be able to breathe because of the way you were hung. And at some point, your strength just gives out. You can't keep doing that, and you suffocate. That's what actually made Jesus' death so quickly surprising to the soldiers who were carrying out the execution. Because even after the beatings and everything else, the victims tended to linger a lot longer than Jesus did. And see, that that's just one more example of the fact that he was in control He chose the time of giving up his life. He did not die from the crucifixion. He died from choosing the time. So he was offered, for whatever reason, he rejected an offer to help deal with the pain. We find this happened again on um, the cross in John 19.29 where we read, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put a sponge on a stalk of hyssopan and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. So even, in a way, this reminds me of Jesus' birth too because remember, God turned the whole Roman Empire upside down to get a, a couple of people uh, expecting a baby to, to Bethlehem. And here, a bunch of soldiers are at the foot of the cross and they're fulfilling prophecy. We read in John nineteen twenty three to 24, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who'll get it. This happened that scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. I can't emphasize enough that God's enemies, those who are fallen, those who are wicked, those who are carrying out what they want to do without any regard to what God thinks, 
God uses to fulfill his own word. This is why we don't have to live in fear about what's going on in Washington or what's going on in Sacramento. Okay. God is in control. Can we be frustrated? Yeah. Should we vote the turkeys out of office? Yeah. Okay. But do we have to be afraid? No. Do we have to turn on the radio? The world's coming to an end. Stock up because 2012 is coming. And according to Mayan calendars, the word's coming to an end. I hope you got all your water supply. Why do Christians have so much anxiety? Yes, we can be impacted by this. Yes, if Social Security goes away, I'm going to be fine. Yes, if Medicare dies, well, maybe I'll be better off depending on the quality of care. But God's in control. Do we really believe that? Here's four soldiers that had no idea who he was, had no idea who was on the cross, just knew that this was a really good-looking Brooks Brothers suit, and they didn't want to split it into separates. And so they're out there shooting dice to get it. That's all they knew. But the prophet, actually David, in Psalm 22, 18, hundreds of years before, said, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. They were fulfilling prophecy and had no clue. Actually, if they'd had a clue, they probably would have been terrified. Why do we live with so much anxiety? God is in control down to the minutest detail. And now... Pilate, who was not very happy, I think, at this point, getting pressured to do this for political expediency, knowing that Jesus was innocent, not caring particularly, just, you know, not liking to be pushed, decides he's going to get his one last shot at the Jewish leadership. And we read in John 19, 19 to 22, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests, that'll tell you who was hanging out, and that there were large groups and that they were down there too. They were like, ah, sign this. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Don't write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. So he had his one shot at him. But the crowds were there and they were really unhappy. It's like they're getting it thumbed at them right down to the very end. And so they're unhappy. And Pilate by this time is so fed up with the whining and complaining of this bunch. He just basically tells them to take a hike. But the fact of the matter is, even Pilate, not just in the fact that he's crucifying Jesus, which is what it was all about, which is what Passover is all about, which is what was supposed to happen at this point, even Pilate is acting prophetically without knowing it because he put up the title that was the correct title. So God uses Pilate. God uses Judas. 
God uses Peter. God uses Herod. God uses the chief priest. This is why, as bizarre as it sounds, I always feel a little touch of of pity for Satan because he keeps trying and God uses his actions to carry out his will. Now, he's creating as much chaos and as destruction on the way out as he can, and he succeeds to the extent that people let him. But in the big picture, God is in control. Remember back in Job when Satan comes up before God and God says, well, I'll let you do this, but here's the limit. Satan has no power over us. His power was lost at the cross, but that which we allow him. Remember, God places leader, governmental leadership in power as long as he sees fit for his reasons. Sometimes it's to, to discipline and punish people, isn't it? Sometimes he lets people have the leadership they deserve, even if it's negative. But the fact of the matter is he's in control and he proposes and disposes as he sees fit. Which, by the way, means also your boss which I know was such a wonderful person and he loved dearly and was just the greatest person to work for. But God allows what he allows. God allows the peculiar people into our lives. Immediately somebody sprang to mind, right? Because we benefit from them. Learning things like endurance and patience, things we don't want to learn. Lord, I want patience. Give it to me now. Why is it taking seven minutes in the microwave? I'm hungry. This is the reality that God is in control. Turn your children over to the Lord. Turn your bosses over to the Lord. Turn your mother-in-law. Or maybe he wouldn't even want her. I don't know. Over to the Lord. Because he's in control and we're not. We want to be. We fight against. Well, if I think of all the alternatives and have it planned out, then I won't be taken by surprise. And of course, then something happens that you didn't plan, right? Why do we want to be in control? Why do we act like we believe that we know what's better for us than God does? Because we don't always like his answers. Why don't we ask God for help in a situation? Because we're afraid he will help us differently than what we want the solution to be. That God that had these soldiers throwing dice, the God that's holding the universe together, the God who has created us and saved us so that we can bring him glory is in control. Why do we want to be in control? I know I do. But why? Because we're still falling. Because we're still dragging around the old flesh. Because I know what's best for me. Which is why I shouldn't have eaten that macaroni and cheese yesterday. (sighs) Matthew Henry talks about the crucifixion this way. Jesus was scourged. This was an ignominious, cruel punishment, especially as it was inflicted by Romans who were not under the moderation of the Jewish law, which forbids scourging above 40 stripes. This punishment was most unreasonable 
inflicted on the one that was sentenced to death. The rods were not to introduce uh, the axes, but to supersede them. Thus the scripture was fulfilled. The plowers plowed upon my back. I gave my back to the smiters, Isaiah 1.6. And by his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53.5. He was chastened with whips that we might be forever chastened with scorpions. Not be forever chastened with scorpions. He was then delivered to be crucified. Though his chastisement was in order to our peace. Yet there is no peace but by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20. Therefore, the scourging is not enough. He must be crucified, a kind of death used only among the Romans, the matter of it such that it seems to be the result of wit and cruelty in combination, each putting forth itself to the utmost to make the death to the highest degree terrible and miserable. The cross was set on the ground, by which the hands and the feet were nailed and by on which the nails the weight of the body hung till he died till it died of pain this was the death to which Christ was condemned that he might answer to the type of the brazen serpent lifted up on a pole just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Psalm 22. And we'll read this again next week. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You've made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashin encircle me, raging lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots from my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare you name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They will seek the Lord. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity uh, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. So what do you have to be thankful for this Thanksgiving? That's not rhetorical. I followed, as I said in that first service, I followed his decisions, his mind. I know his are perfect, and mine are not. His word. His word. You know, I'm uh, going through something weird right now. My, uh, I'm become a primary caretaker for my sister-in-law who had a heart attack and stroke. She came in to live with us September 22nd, and I drive her to dialysis three times a week. And I'm telling you, that dialysis center, I felt like I was walking into hell. I wanted to vomit, and I, I you know, because everybody's blood is going around in circles in the, the machine to clean it out. And um, so I drop her off and quickly move away, run away, you know. I couldn't handle it. Well, one day I was there, uh, after a couple of days, I, I happened to be there when they put the needles into her arm, and I realized the poor woman, she can't remember. Her memory is gone from the stroke. So she can't remember to tell them to put the needle in a certain spot so she won't endure so much pain. There's a nerve there. So I forced myself to stay there, and now I'm, I'm better. But uh, after a couple of days, uh, I began to have a change of attitude. I put a smile on my face, and I started talking to these people. I have no legs, no feet, or their mind is gone. And, and I began to notice that a lot of those people coming into that place are completely institutionalized. They have no family. I never see a family talking to them. So the more I saw it, the more I'm changing my face. My, I have a smile, and I'm, hi, how are you? You know, and I hear the story, and I make sure I'm there for my <coughs> sister-in-law so she doesn't have to endure the pain, you know. And um, I came to realize, I guess, all this to say, I'm so thankful that I have a family. I until you see these people that without one, it, it and to be so dependent on an institution and all these various people that are treating you from the driver of the you know thing that can't drive it. That, oh, it's just it's just um, I guess this Thanksgiving for me, I'm just completely thankful that that. I know I have a relationship with God, and he's given me the strength to walk into that place and do this thing and just be thankful for the family, to have a family. Amen. I'm thankful for the opportunity for the freedom that we still have to 
Amen. Some of us, I just can't make shut up. <laughs> yes. I'm just thankful for the people that God brings into our life, and so many times you don't even recognize. Sometimes He's bringing them there for you to share with, and just you know to make you more keen and aware of those needs of other people, which Christ saw in the crowd. You know. Mm-hmm. Thank him for the irregular people in our lives. I won't suggest ask for more, but at least thank him for the ones we've got. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, Godly friends who are right with God keep you in line in time of need. Okay. Think about that. Use this week. Keep going back to the cross as the basis for our thankfulness. Look at the people around us that have whose lives are empty, meaningless, headed nowhere, to no purpose, to no end, and be thankful for the fact that God in his graciousness chose us and in his love and mercy allows us to be a conduit of some of that same truth to the to these people who need it so desperately. We have a lot to be grateful for. And even the trials in our lives are trials that God uses to bless us. Okay, yes, there are times when we say, I'm blessed enough already. Recess. But when we need it, God will give us that too. So, most of all, we are grateful that he is in control and we are not. Trials must hurt us too. Amen.